Hi, I'm Connor Byrne, and this is That's What I Call Marketing, the podcast where you'll hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique stories. Today, I am joined by Mary Kirikadi, global thought leader at Cantor. Mary and the team at Cantor recently released Modern Marketing Dilemmas, which is an evidence-based guide to help marketers protect their margins. There are seven chapters in this wonderful publication filled with actionable tips to help you strengthen your brand's intangible perceptions in the mind of consumers. What ultimately gets your brand chosen and brings tangible value to shareholders is what's important and is what this report is all about. What's truly great about this publication is it looks to embrace opposing perspectives. And so the conversation today digs into two of the big themes of the report that come through in each of the seven chapters. Things that marketers like you really care about right now, pricing and budget pressure. So in the discussion with Mary, we talk about how having a strong brand can create a tolerance for higher pricing, framing a brand in a meaningful way that can shield price premiums. We talk about difference and distinctiveness, the important link between pricing and profitability, the influence exerted on future buyers during the equity phase and the meaningful different framework. Lots of amazing content to get through today. Enjoy this one. Mary, thanks for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing. Great to see you. It's a pleasure, Connor. Great to see you too. Listen, for anyone who doesn't know who you are, just give me a, a brief uh, uh, description. Who who are you? What do you do? Okay, okay. I'm, I'm Mary Kay. Uh, a lot of people don't dare to pronounce my surname. <laughs> I've always been Mary Kay, just that. So in terms of what I do, um, I simply write stories about brands, you know, stories that have a lot of data, obviously, uh, behind them. So I speak to the counter scientists quite a lot, and then um, we use that fresh data as it comes out of the lab. And after a significant amount of thinking, the writing begins. But so this is what I do. My, my, my role is predominantly to simplify um, those complex charts and package it in a way that is more understood by people out there in the industry. Readers or clients. How yeah. did you get into it? Uh, through the back, through the back door, really. I was uh, in broadcast media for a while. Okay. So I, um, I was at the BBC and I was uh, a client of Cantar's. So I joined them around four and a half years ago. And um, one job led to another within within Cantar. Yes, but I, I knew them um, as an agency because I was working with them. That's how it started. Amazing. It's always interesting how people land places. And you've mentioned Cantar. For anyone listening who doesn't know Cantar, tell me what Cantar does. I I know for a fact that awareness levels are quite high, but I'm going to yeah, tell yeah. you. So, <laughs> uh, but um, for those who don't know, us, Cantar is a is a data analytics and brand consulting company. So I would say, do you want to know uh, what makes your audience tick? You come to us. Or do you want to know what tools to use to make a more meaningful impact? You come to us. Um, I would I would say that um, we are an agency with a heart, uh, an nymph, and a surplus fire, fire in the belly. I think that's where we are. We have you know we have we have products, we have uh, yeah. analytics, bioanalytics, but we also have you know in our minds. Um, or the scientists' minds, you know, the, the deep brand building expertise. That's what we've got. Amazing, amazing. And recently you released uh, 
modern marketing dilemmas, which yeah. I, like, so I saw it, I was like, what a, first of all, what a wonderful title, because like, it's just, yes, there are many marketing dilemmas that we're all facing. What was the intent or how did it come about um, that, that report? Um, well, I'll be honest, I've, I've come into this um, because I've always had a question mark about why as an industry we seem to disagree at everything. I think yeah. we don't tend to agree a lot. Um, so given that, um, you know, we can use data, there's a lot of data we can use as a compass. So the, the question is, why can we just use that to come to an agreement? But, but then I answer my own question because for every finding, there is effectively an example out there that can falsify it. And then, you know, our, our data truths appear to be a little bit wishy-washy. Uh, right. So this is this is because the things we're looking at are, are intrinsically difficult to generate for, uh, rules from. So that alone, as a fact, fascinates me. And I wanted to find the truth, uh, the empirically proven truth, um, and back it up with a lot of studies. But the intent, actually, of creating the report was to help marketers better fight their corner in the boardroom um yeah this is what uh we wanted to do this is the intention um which, which is a great like a big you know it's a great intention because it is i think maybe that's the modern marketing dilemma or maybe that's just the always marketing dilemma is how do we make the case how do we fight and maybe that's the wrong word but maybe marketers are always fighting for whatever right it, more different whatever it is so i think that's a, a wonderful a wonderful thing to kind of help marketers you mentioned there the kind of the it's hard often to generalize because there's so many you know either is you there's a view then there's a different view or there's data mm -hmm. and there's other data so how did you kind of try pull it all together to to, to create something that is more um I, I, usable well uh... We, uh, when you're on the lookout for the truth, you've got to uh, do a lot of number cracking. And I admit it wasn't me. So we, we spent, as a team, we probably spent 18 months in the, in the lab. We stress-tested theories. We wow. reassessed hypotheses that we first proved, by the way, 15 years ago. I wasn't there at the time. Mm -hmm. And we were, accept, we were prepared, rather, to accept any, any truth that would come out of that. And if we had to, we would tear up the textbook and do an okay. 180, or even on our framework, but uh, if the data suggested we should, but yeah, we didn't yeah. have to because okay. the fresh validations were even um, were even more strong, more, more valid now than they were before. Uh, but in terms of packaging it, you've got to find the story. You've got to find a captivating story um, and present it, as I said before, in a simplified. I'm very passionate about that. I'm yes. very passionate about the simplicity which you're going you're gonna to use to present it. Yeah. It's for the uh, yeah, because I think to get to the understanding, the usability, and then there's a, like within the report, there's places to go deeper, find out more, or obviously get in touch with Cantor. You know, that's where you know the, the value comes from. It. What were there were there were a couple of key themes out of the report, just for again anyone who may not have yet read Modern Marketing Dilemmas, which they can find on uh, Cantor's site. Um, what are the themes that that you cover in the report? We have we have seven thing, themes in there, but then within those themes, there are many other sub-themes, so yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. In terms of a number, I probably couldn't give you one, but we start, I can give you some headlines. We start with marketing ROI, 
and we debate whether it's nonsensical or not. You know, it plays it plays with the, that dichotomy between short, the short and the long term, and yeah. what we call uh, performance marketing and brand building. And we 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 come to a point where we say you know, marketing our way, yes, it plays a critical part in the uh, decision-making uh, process, but it's only offering half of the truth. But we also talk about mental and physical uh, availability, the role that the brand plays in the consumer decision journey, the role of predisposition and equity. We talk about distinctiveness versus differentiation. Uh, there's a lot of information that has come out of the lab, especially about, uh, about that. We talk about pricing, which was a topic that... Um, became really hot uh, like a year ago uh, now with um, inflation rising. Yeah. So we talk, it's a very practical council. We talk about um, uh, how, to, uh, how to influence your business to focus on the value of your brand. We give a, a three-step guide to how, about how to stand up to recession and we talk about loyalty. So there you go. I tell them all in one sentence. <laughs> um, and, and for me, I think there are, there's probably two kind of big themes consistently as I read the report that kind of kept jumping out for me. And so for me, I think it was pricing and budget pressure. So yeah. I'd love to dig into kind of those as not one of the specific seven themes, but kind of as a, as a holistic theme throughout the, the report. Mm -hmm. So and I might read some of the stuff that I pulled out of the report sure. here, so I'm, I'll, I'll be looking down. Uh, but so pricing is definitely something that a lot of brands are are dealing with. The costs are going up. Customers are bearing the brunt of this. And the view, as you read the report, is that a strong brand can help. And there, there was a line here around, you know, an enhanced perception. The product is good value for money. There's a greater tolerance for a higher price. Hmm. I think for a lot, no, maybe not a lot of people, but I think that that almost seems like a, you know, it seems wrong. Like, why would people pay for a higher, higher price? And, you know, so I'd love to talk a bit about that and what you found. Um, well, first of all, I need to say that we are we are ardent advocates of brand equity. So it, it plays a role in everything that I'm going to say. So, uh, so what a brand has over and above its commodity versions. This is its brand equity. This is what... Uh, defines and redefines it. Right? So if you have equity, then you're more desirable uh, among your uh, customers, um, retailers, even employees. And then more seemingly, you can fence off competitors. And it's, it becomes easier for you to command and price premium or defend your price uh, if uh, we're talking about a, a period of um, um, inflation like we're going through now. So strong brands we have found, and there's a lot of evidence around this, they, they, they can be more resilient uh, when times are tough. And they can also recover faster mm. after, you know, after a crisis, in a post-crisis situation. So if you are a strong brand, yes, you can command a price premium or you can defend your price. And, but to do that, you need to be well-equipped to deal with exactly that P, pricing. So, uh, but 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 I, in my view, actually, um, pricing is like is like what hair is is claimed to be for Samson, but it's also at the same time it's, it's also their their Achilles heel because not everyone is dealing with pricing. You know, they don't they don't necessarily think that is is part of their uh, remit, and um, 
I uh, we had we had um, we did an ignite event in the UK a few weeks ago, and Les Binet was there, and he right. used in one of his slides uh, slides rather um, um, like he he. He talked about rediscovering the four P's and yeah. with red letters he wrote, if pricing is wrong, uh, all other marketing efforts are futile. So I know a number of academics are talking about this um, and uh, industry influencers like Grayson is talking about the triptych of pricing, the, the price, the price itself and framing the price. But you see, the problem is that if you, if you, um, if you mess up that um, price setting, um, volume will always dictate your movements your, and your value will become an, after, uh, an afterthought. So you will be selling off more stuff, but you will be making less money. This is why, this is why um, pricing is so important. Um, and this is why strong brands can actually defend it. There's, there's so much in there. And, and one, but I might start with the strong brands can defend it. But if you are not yet a strong brand, you, you know, does that, I guess it does suggest that like pricing isn't a thing that you can, like a lever you can touch because you're not, you're not there. So if I'm in that position where, okay, I'm, I'm under pressure, you know, our pricing is under pressure. Do we decrease our pricing? Cause that's going to, that has a risk of devaluing then the brand equity, right? You know, like if you're constantly discounting and devaluing, what, what do I do in that position if, if I'm, you know, that's a really hard position. And I think some people are probably there. Yeah, yes. So it's um, it's it's a really tricky, as you say, situation to be in. And even though it seems like it, it might be time for price decreases, I'm afraid it's time to do the opposite. So the, the temptation for marketers in situations like that has always been um, to do that, to offer great discounts. In fact, they engage in two other activities as well. They reduce their products for the same price, that shrinkflation phenomenon that yes. we talk about. They also reduce advertising. But sales promotions are probably the biggest thing for every marketer because, um, every, and everyone, every, I think everyone in the market is talking about the fact that they can be addictive uh, and others, yeah. they can be an insidious thing for a business. So, what we're saying is that we're not saying don't ever do them, just use them um, um, in a way, in a, in a more strategic and more sparingly. So you can actually strengthen your brand equity yeah. uh, against the new buyer, maybe via trial uh, or among lapsed customers via experience. But you need to always manage them against an objective. So you might want to uh, get more space, or you, uh, as in shelf space, or you yeah. might be, you might want more salience. Uh, you might want to increase your trial and experience. But if you abuse them, you will find yourself into what we call the spiral of doom. You, uh, yeah. you, 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 yes, you drive your uh, your volume, but your margins get squeezed, and then as a result of that innovations and marketing budgets suffer. And, and as a result of it, people expect to always buy the brand at a lower price. And you yeah, know what yeah. you do? You discount even more. Yeah, um, and I was going to say, you, you, you get churned then as well, because people are like, I can get this at one pound. And then, you know, if it goes to a pound and 10, people are like, well, no, 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 I'm, I, I get it at a pound. So you have to go to 95 to get them back or 80 to get... You know, it's just this, it is, a, I love that spiral of doom. Like, it's just such a, a difficult position it, to be in. 
It is, it is. And 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 they don't just impact, uh, as in discounts, the, the margins made on current sales. They, I would say they habituate existing buyers to actually expect lower price in the future as well. Yeah. They can become signals that can be positive or negative for potential buyers because, you know, some people don't care. They don't see a difference between brands. For some other people, actually, it's a signal of quality. So they might actually not... Not, not prefer you anymore because of that, because of that lower price. Um, there is a risk that people uh, will perceive a, a brand discounting more than they might expect. They might actually infer that there is there's something wrong with it or that it has perhaps it's of, of poor quality or that it's not as popular as it used to yeah. be. Yeah. So pricing is a very important role to play. But in your report, it said, three and four CMOs question whether pricing is even part of their remit. Yes, yes. Chopped no, look did, in my face. <laughs> yeah, yes. No, I did I did say that. Um, uh, because I. this is a fact, actually. It's um, uh, well-sourced in there. Um, now, yes, you're right. And it's, it's mind-blowing to me because, uh, I mean, we've done one of the things that we've done and one of the metrics that we talked about and the validations we talked about is, is that of pricing power, which is effectively um, one, of those, one of those metrics, yes, that came out of the lab. And, and we, uh, we, we talk uh, about the fact that if you, if you have more than that, if you have a higher pricing power that gives you the courage to resist the temptation of sales yeah. promotions and use them as i said before strategically aspiringly because we know very well that for every four points of increase in relative price you need one point of pricing power um, to justify it and we also know that consumers we have found are willing to pay double for, for brands that have high pricing power um, compared to those uh, that have a lower pricing power. And, and that is actually a validation that is stronger than it was before. It was only 13% more before in the past, a few years ago. Okay. So uh, I, I, don't, I actually don't understand why um, CMOs would, would, would not play with that P because, because it's a brand's ability to justify a price premium relative to their category average based purely on consumers' perceptions of a brand. Uh, so it, it, it links to price sensitivity. And yes. If, if, so as a CMO, is it that CMOs aren't fighting to own pricing or like how, what can they do like if you're a cmo now and you're not you're not owning pricing should like do they need to fight for it or just have more influence over it like what's the like what's the problem what should cmos be doing um we what, what our advice to them is that it's not just we don't say to them in a very simplistic way you know everything is more expensive so make sure you put your prices up make sure you deal with pricing you put your price up our advice to them uh, to the cmos and the businesses is to focus on their brand as a value producing asset and and align their interests to those of the consumers now this way we say they will maintain their margin um and and pricing power in a way that is affordable to consumers My, our advice to 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 cmos is effectively all the metrics that they're using to connect them to the business performance and speak the language that see the ceos and the cfos are speaking yeah yeah that's yeah that's so true the, um i think that yeah just speaking the language and knowing the language and kind of connecting 
you know, what you're trying to do, what the business is trying to do, what the consumer needs, you know, that that kind of becomes quite quite powerful. And um, there was another piece, and this is, again, it's relate, related to price premium that I, f- I found interesting. So you say that we found that to spur market share and to shield price premium, premium an ad should create impressions that frame a brand in a meaningful and different way in people's memories, going beyond addressing the consumer's functional needs with the standard approach to product and benefits. And you yes. say that there is plenty of evidence to support that. I'd love to talk a bit about that and some of the evidence that you found that supports. That, yes, that um, we um, we test over I think thirteen thousand ads in a year. That's a lot. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, you're right. Um, there's a, there's a good team of people who are doing that. Um, nobody's sleeping in the lab, right? So we are, we ask consumers to judge them. So it's consumers themselves who decide, and we want to see which ones they like the most. Obviously, is a very reasonable request, and and which are those that are hitting the mark in both in terms of generating short term sales and brand uh, and and building equity at the same time so it's a, it's a process that allows us to understand what highly effective advertisers have in common this is how we talk about it and and every year we find that the foundations of good uh, advertising have actually not changed it's about right. being distinctive it's about uh, uh, getting the attention winning the attention um in uh, you know although ensuring at the same time that the brands at the heart of your creative is about being meaningfully different what you just talked about triggering an emotional response and of course talking to your customer don't lose perspective of, of consumers because you get too close to your brand right but when we talk about that meaningfully different piece the information the information that we have found is that uh, brands that convey a meaningful difference in their advertising can grow faster than those that grow on creative excellence alone. And I think this is quite powerful uh, because you've, you've got to bring that in and then you have even stronger foundations. Okay, so what, can you give me an example of, of what you mean when you say meaningful difference in their, in their advertising? There are a couple of... Um, there are a couple of uh, advertisements that uh, are listed in the report. Uh, I remember Bosch as an example. Okay. Um, so it's actually quite, it's, it can be actually quite vivid for those who want to watch the ads. They can, they can play them as well. So probably it's like uh, an image is worth a thousand words. I would yeah. say it's worth even more. Um, I, Maybe we can even play it if you want, but it's uh, the the examples we have in there. So it's the a, a, a Bosch ad um, that consumers rated as one of the best in the Cantar um, Creativeness okay. Awards. I think it was last year that brings exactly that the meaningful difference to life. Um, right. They use they use storytelling, the art of storytelling, and um, it's it's okay. It's a, it's a family situation. Uh, uh, the ad presenter consider a gesture of a loving son who is about to leave home, I think, for the first time, and what he family. does to soothe his mother's sadness. So it's yeah, it's a nice example. It's a good way to stand out. Uh, that meaningful, different, creative, and boost effectiveness. This is what we're talking about. Amazing, and I will add. I'll, I'll add a link to to that ad actually in the the show notes and also in the um, 
in the in the, the YouTube link as well, so people can people can watch it because I think that's really important. Actually, pause this, go watch the ad because then it all starts to make to make sense. Um, but I, th- I think that's interesting. But you, you all you can't you mentioned creative, and so the meaningful difference is more important than creative, or it has to be done in a very creative Within way. It. Yes, yeah. yeah, it should be one of the components. It should be one of the things that you do uh, to be a winner in that, to get uh, to get through to the consumers, to be to be noticed, and to win more brownie points in in their hearts and minds. Yeah, and you you also talk about distinctiveness. So, where is the balance between differentiation, distinctiveness? What's your view on on that? Um, okay, so this uh, <laughs> this is a, a very interesting topic. Uh, we um, we've done we've done a lot of that. Uh, we talk about um, we say that, that actually uh, you need both when it comes to distinctiveness and differentiation. What we say is that being different has legs because what we say, what we have found is that it links to pricing power and profits. But we also say that being distinctive plays a significant role in improving marketing effectiveness. And we we advocate that a brand that uh, is both, if a brand can be both, then it taps into the fast and the slow layers of the brain right. when it's decision time in the consumers. And you know what's the result of that? A choice is made in your favor, in your favor, brother. Yes. Um, so uh, yes, this is um, the this is what. But we've we have actually also partnered with the University of Oxford, the Said um, Business School, and um, we we wanted to understand their take on the role of difference and. Um, and the, on the role that difference plays in growing brands. And luckily, actually, they had a similar obsession. They wanted to understand the precise contribution that different marketing activities make to abnormal financial returns. So it was um, the associate professor, Philippe uh, Thomas, and his team, they studied almost 900 brands and their expected financial returns over a period of 12 years. And... And then on top of that, they've added uh, equity observations for, from our Kantar Brunzi database. And you know what their crown jewel finding was? Um, they found the difference was the biggest contributor towards abnormal stock returns. Um, so we, you know, um, it, it's quite interesting. It's, it's quite interesting um, that we, we both came to the same conclusion. That is interesting. And I, I don't want to get into the, the detail of that because I'm sure there's so much in that that study, you know, and I, I'm, I know they would have, but like, how do they f- like factor out everything else that's going on and just focus and, on different And it might be that you, I won't be able to answer that. So, uh, <laughs> yes, it might be that you need uh, Professor Thomas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I suspect that would just not be good for him. Mm, just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be good for me, but it would be very good for him. Um <laughs> Uh, great I wanted to move on to kind of the, I guess then the second big kind of theme that's coming out and I think maybe the the biggest marketing or dilemma for marketeers at the minute is how do I get how do I do more with less how can I protect the budgets my board or my CEO are putting pressure on me to you know reduce this cut costs here and um, and we know that marketing budgets are 
you know, just a common, I think you have written down the, the report, a common casualty in economic slowdowns. Mm, so mm. what um, what should marketers be doing? It's a very real, real problem and topic for people. I, um, I think you need to learn from history or if you are a CMO who's working into a boardroom and trying to defend their budget, you need to, budget, you need to educate uh, your peers by uh, allowing them to learn from history. So, so you need to look at what happened in the previous crisis and um, what has the value of marketing investment been during the global financial crisis of 2008, for instance. And then again, more recently, when the world was initially gripped by the uh, COVID-19 mm. pandemic, when when some of those brands have stopped spending. So we, and I mentioned this before, so our, our Brandsy data proves that uh, brands that continue to invest, uh, they showed a high degree of resilience when times got tough. Yeah. And also that these brands, again, recovered their value more quickly. So, um, so this you can this can be your the start of your argument. But you can use Excelsior Voice. You can show them uh, binets and and fields work and the long and the short of it. And you can go look. Uh, what what it effectively shows is that it's simple stuff, right? If you spend more than your competitors on advertising versus your uh, market share that that would allow your brand to grow now if you do this during a time when everyone else stops obviously the gains are going to be greater for you if your competitors are holding back yeah um so when i'm being asked the question how why why not the how is a different question but the why uh, shall i continue to invest my brand everyone else seems to um have stopped uh, so maybe it's the time for me too we use um we use a, the tanker engine analogy and we say marketing investment is like a tanker engine. You know, you, your, your forward inertia is your brand's equity. So you turn off your engine uh, for a while and inertia will, will keep the ship moving forward. Yes. But as it slows down, you will need additional power to return to your former speed. And that additional power is actually your additional marketing investment. So our um, global head of data science innovation, his name is Jorge Alagon, uh, and his team, they've done a lot of work uh, to bring this to life. And they've modeled and simulated data from our clients, and they have proved what happens when someone goes completely dark, and what happens, in fact, when someone goes down by 50% versus keeping the, the, the budget intact. And they have tangibly shown that market share uh, goes down when someone goes dark, uh, but uh, also that the market share doesn't quite recover when the investment is resumed. It, it takes a lot longer and a lot more additional yeah. <clears throat> investment. Um, um, yes. So short term gains in the sense of you may reduce your marketing spend now which may help bottom line event you know ultimately in the in this moment but you know long-term pain because if you want to try to get back there you're going to have to probably maybe spend twice what you cut correct. or you know correct. making up correct. Numbers, yeah correct 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 yes you see there is um when there will always be uh, these people who will consider marketing to be um, a cost rather than an investment, and um, and they will they will consider that um, you know 
there is um, that that any 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 investment in brand building is probably a luxury uh, or a yeah. vanity project. But um, and good luck to these people actually, and <laughs> probably good luck to the people who are working with them. It's 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 tough, but if but there's a lot of data out there that can help you uh, make your point and um, stand your ground and defend your budget, and. The reality is that the more you do what we said before, which is to, to, to connect, you know, you work with your equity, you, uh, understand your equity and the impact of your equity and connect uh, that to uh, your financial performance and build models around that, then you can prove to them uh, in a very financial language that, you know, you, you make improvements and you're moving uh, all these all these indicators and um, you create a, a group of happy people, uh, I would say. Yes. But you need to do the same thing with your uh, marketing investment as well. Um, so what are the channels that you should be investing? Or everything should be connected and be able to prove it in the boardroom. And then gradually you win them over. You need to make allies. Um, that's another thing. You need to make allies. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think um, what's interesting there is I probably isn't saying to people that you shouldn't not be open to the idea of budget cuts right you know because i think that's very important because sometimes when we hear the stuff it's like oh yeah easy for you to say you know you're not you're not in that room and i you're not seeing the you know the the monthly report etc etc and so i there's probably a balance in it like everything where it's like yes that you may need to make cuts what we're saying is try not make significant drastic cuts that are going to hurt the future equity and future performance of, of the brand and the business. That's exactly what we're saying. That's exactly what we're saying. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So, you know, cause I'm literally sitting here thinking, going, you know, God, you know, it, it, it's a very difficult world for people at the moment and, and being able to kind of balance it and say, cause I think people are going in and going, no, you're getting none of my budget. No, that's true. That's true. And, and you know, there's a str there's strong evidence that comes from um, uh, Marketing Week, a language uh, of effectiveness survey that suggests that a lot of businesses are still struggling to prioritize brand building. So we, um, yeah. it all comes down to that balance again, because, you know, they're, they're spending money on something. Yes, they're, they're, they're Budgets are being slashed, but we see that um, the the performance marketing part is being prioritised. And our media reactions actually survey verifies that story. We we know very well that although eighty six percent of marketers agree that it's important to measure effectiveness in the short and the long term, only twenty three uh, of them actually measure the short and the long term integrated way. But I but but I am actually an optimist, you know, from and from my conversations with with clients and um, the clients' services team in the business, I observe that the tide is turning in the sense that the C-suite is now more than ever before willing to touch on the consumer mindset and they want to hear um, they want to hear how they will be able to increase their lifetime value. This is quite important. So, in order to yeah. be taken seriously, you've got to you've got to well uh, do your math. Um, th yeah. Those connections that we said to the business performance, and then and then use the the lessons from history. Um, and you should you should be in a much better place. Do, do you think like part of the problem might be? the naming conventions we we have on things you know 
brand building long term, you know, uh, and and then performance growth. And you know, a friend of mine um, said to me that the person who came up with the phrase performance marketing is a branding genius. <laughs> <laughs> because you know it's become very sticky and it suggests that all other marketing is not performing by, yeah. by its name like do we need to try and move away from the categorization and, and probably get back to talking about marketing <laughs> you know business yeah. problem marketing and here's the solutions and not worry so much about you know well this is performance this is brand building yeah i don't disagree with that i don't disagree with, but the reality is that <clears throat> a lot of a lot of this stuff is usually there are actually silo teams in in the business yeah. as well so it's a very tangible thing it's a very um realistic scenario where you have two different teams working not necessarily in an integrated way and i know that uh, uh, some some people it might have been the b2b institute for linkedin they uh, they're talking about um they're talking in a long-lasting performance. They they talk about right. um, you know the brand building, and I I and I get it, and I think renaming it and branding it in a way uh, that is is more helpful to marketers will um, will actually move us forward to, to the right direction. But but it's not it's not that it's not um, a car. It is an issue, and it's it's more than yes. a language issue. Issue. It's it's probably more linked to uh, different areas of the business working with different uh, objective sets in front of them. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I've seen that. I've seen that where, you know, you can have, you know, performance or growth teams very tied to product, you know, and so that becomes mm. very different, you know, so mm. it is, you're right. It comes down to objectives. It, it often comes, I was thinking about this this morning, it often comes down to like structure of marketing teams and how a marketing team is structured because then it sometimes it becomes easier to go, Oh, well, I can give it there because I can see immediate returns. Like it's it's a very complex. It's not. I'm, yeah, don't understate the simplicity of it. It's very complex. But um, yeah, I just want to get your view on that. Um, yeah, there was another thing in going back to the the report, modern marketing mm -hmm. dilemmas. Mm -hmm. You talk about the equity phase. So the influence exerted on future buyers during the equity phase is much greater than simply simply widening the mouth of the funnel, as in due time its neck will widen too. And I was reading that going, that kind of feels like a very interesting way to look at budgets and investments. Can mm -hmm. you talk to me a bit about what you mean by the equity phase and kind of that widening the, the funnel? Yes, yes. So we looked at the, it's the second article, right? So we looked at the, at the role that the brand plays in the consumer decision journey. And we have found that uh, out of the three stages that we've identified, equity plays the most crucial role. So if you have equity, uh, you will trigger future sales. And I mean, think about it. Investors relish the intangible value of your brand and give it a generous market capitalization mm. because they know that sales and profit will come from future buyers. Um, buyers. Um, so uh, equity unlocks penetration that hasn't happened yet. In a way, it does that. It unlocks penetration that hasn't happened yet. And this is why uh, positive perceptions in the minds of every buyer, uh, even those who are not in the market right now, uh, they're really important. They're really important as a driver of growth. And this is what we call uh, equity. And that's linked to the future. And it's, um, it's not, it's very, it's very close to the, the nine 
95 uh, five, yeah. five ratio. Yeah. Yes, so the, you know, the um, for B2B buyers more, more so, yeah. I think they talk about it, but also it was from the Aramabas Institute um, before, so it was reframed now, but only 5% of those buyers are in the market right now, and 95 you know, they're, you can't really reach them. You can't convince them to come in, right? They're out of market and, and maybe they won't buy for months and or even years. So working on that equity, on that predisposition in the minds of the consumers for when they're ready, for the time when they're ready, is actually quite important um, for um, yeah. consumer choice to be made. Yeah, and it's very, right. I think that whole kind of, as James Herman calls it, future demand, like thinking about how you how you're set up to create that and capture it because I think again if we go back a lot of a lot of you know reporting in in marketing teams is around current demand and capturing current demand but you like it, that hasn't and that can happen you know particularly and as James talked about like you know newer products are going to capture that current demand easier because they're solving a problem but mm, to create mm. that future demand, you really have to think about, you know, the longer term and your category, know your category and who your buyers in that category. Right. It's, you know, and that takes time and, you know, you need to understand your your consumers. Yes, yes, yes. We talk about it in and we talk about demand power, you know, the four metrics that were presented in in another uh, article of the report. We talk about demand, but everything is purely based on conception on perceptions of a brand, right? So like demand power measures what you were saying now, it measures a customer demand uh, right now and correlates to the market share. Uh, yes. Future power is the probability that the brand will grow value share in the next 12 months which is quite powerful um if you're if you're thinking about if you're in it for the long term yeah and that's the part of the meaningful different framework right because there's the four there's demand power pricing power future Correct. power and activation power and right. you, you talked right. a bit about that you know something that you first proved 15 years ago and these fresh validations have actually kind of almost doubled down and saying these are the right uh the right ways to think about it um, can you talk to me then a bit? We talked a bit about some of them, but maybe a bit more detail to people. What is the meaningful different uh, framework, and then these four powers? I love the word. Yeah, it's great. So, um, so we, th these three dimensions, effectively, you 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 put them together, and the offspring of the the three, in a very practical way, I'm going to describe it, can give you those those powers, which are um, uh, surrogate metrics for. <clears throat> what's going to happen now in the future in terms of your sales. So um, we just talked about demand powers. It correlates to your market share. And then your future power is what's going to happen uh, in, in, in 12 months. And, and what we're saying is that, and then pricing power is the brand's ability to justify yeah. the price premium, um, again, relative to the category average, based purely on consumer perceptions of a brand. So what 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 we're saying to the CMOs is that um, if you're not if if the CEOs and the CFOs are not necessarily playing nicely with you in the playground, are you what you need to do you know the, the challenge I suppose is to win them over, and and actually use those metrics uh, of demand power of future power and pricing power. They can help you do. Um, Exactly, that be a more popular, um, uh, and 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 I suppose because you're linking them to their financially driven metrics. Yeah, 
uh, every time you prove that you're adding value to your brand. Uh, and that's in addition to your sales performance, you see. Uh, so that, uh, that, that goes very well with, with what we kind of described without naming it before, a more balanced scorecard. So uh, the meaningfully different framework, so meaningful different and salient framework, so we're saying be those three. And if, if, if your brand can be those three, you can win the battle of, of sales now and in the future. Uh, and you can, um, you, can, you can resist, um, you can be more resilient in crisis and you can recover faster recover faster uh, in the aftermath of a crisis. And, and yes, you can fence off competitors. It can be quite powerful because it's more than the sum of these three. Um, so um, that's, why, um, that's why we talk about the framework and that's why we're bringing in the framework to, uh, into every solution that we offer. Right. It's, it's in the background. Uh, so we're, we are, um, we are encouraging our clients um, to, to see whether they're moving the needle um, across these, these uh, metrics, these brand metrics. But there are other, you know, it's a, we, um, the, the slow, and we talk about this in the report, the slow moving indicators and fast moving yeah. indicators. So these, these four would be slow moving. They're incredibly important, but they don't move um, uh, as, as fast as yeah. other metrics. So what we're saying is keep on, keep on monitoring them, but uh, uh, look at them uh, every three to 12 months, depending on your category and depending on your market. Um, uh, that's when you should expect to see a movement. That's really interesting. To, like three, I mean, three twelve. Like twelve months seems like a, a long time away. You know, if you're only looking at these every twelve months, that seems like you know. How are you selling that in? It's, I don't mean selling, but it's, but it's there. But it's there. You see, I think the the, the biggest problem in, in selling it is not in selling the actual metrics. Is in because um, in actually convincing them, convincing let's say a brand manager that they need uh, to understand what is in people's minds uh okay because we we know very well that nine in ten brands over measurable status don't actually track their brand equity which i would say raises the question of whether a brand manager title uh accurately reflects their responsibility so um so uh, successful brand managers have got to do the exercise of actually sitting down understanding what are the attributes you want to they want to stand for and uh, what are the ones they want to improve what are they want to be associated less with in about 12 months and and uh, after you've done this very valuable exercise then you should you should you should measure that create a tracking system that uh, will help you measure all that now some of those some of those indicators you're going to bring in in your amalgam of indicators for the uh, long-term sustainable growth will move fast and some of those will move more slowly. So you need to be well aware of that so that you know yeah. what to expect. And, and they're very, you know, it's a very long conversation, but we can have it. Um, but when, when, when I mentioned the six to 12 months, you know, you, um, you should, uh, when we're talking about brand strength, when we're talking about predisposition, when we're talking about conversion to sales in, in the long-term, becoming an easy choice uh, or changing the perceptions in the minds of the consumers, whether you're worth now more than what you're currently charging. So coming back to your pricing yeah. power, these metrics are slow moving. 
So they matter a lot, though, you know, yes. even though they don't move a lot, which are, which is quite different to, you know, in the short term, uh, for instance, you would look at search and social. That changes on a daily basis and on a weekly basis, depending on the campaigns you are having. You're getting those first signals of brand yeah. response, let's say, to your advertising. You measure whether it's effective. Um, you can test your creatives and all that. Uh, but... but and then on a monthly basis, you can look at the more valuable associations. But but then but then salience and meaningfulness and difference will will change um, more slowly. Yes, it's re. So I mean, it's really important to, I guess, know the objectives you have. The business has and correct. Create correct. a really correct. strong, like almost metrics dashboard, and yes. and have everyone buying into what we're looking at why yes. and when because you know if people are like you know if people are expecting those slower moving metrics to be reported on monthly people are like, well they're not moving <laughs> well, correct correct <laughs> but nothing ever moves uh, so what i'm, what I'm going to show to the board i would say don't don't let the short-term fixation hurt your long-term growth this is what it comes down to because measurement is not and should not be a beauty contest. You know, it's 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 a meaningful input in the decision-making process, an input that will stimulate interaction. If it's used correctly, it will stimulate interaction and it will exercise influence in the boardroom. So uh, successful brand building starts effectively with the realisation that if you prioritise those short-term gains, you will likely inflict um, long-term damage um, and and the realization that links to everything we were saying before that the realization that the stronger your brand the more superior your shareholder returns and the greater the contribution to the to the business's future cash flow future you know we're talking about 12 months away but if you're in it for the long run um, sustainable growth is the only option yeah and it, you know how do people use i mean this report you know like download it and hand it to your ceos is one thing is one thing yes, people can yeah. do but you know what are the what are the kind of what should people be doing because you can read it there's so much as we've talked about we've only scratched the surface to be fair of this report and yeah there's so much in it there's so much great information what what can people Sounds, be doing with yeah it? Um, the easiest answer would be to they give us a call, but I don't know if that's the only thing. That, some some people give us a call directly. Some people uh, get in touch with me, and then I uh, direct them to other people. Uh, we uh, sometimes, you know, the it, it helps if someone external um, uh, comes in and talks yeah. about these things. Um, so we I, I've done this a couple of times. Well, actually more. Um, and there there are more uh, plans. I'm actually talking about this exact thing in Prague next week at the WPB Expo. Um, okay. So so I know many brands want their CEOs to take note, but you're right. Uh, whether it's them as agents or they use an external agent is a, you know, it's, it's completely their own decision to make. Uh, it's, it's interesting because some of the people who have downloaded the report, they are already clients of ours and they use it as uh, ammunition to to go in and say, you see, I told you, you know, we, yeah, we yeah. have made the right decision and we, we should keep on doing that. Um, but it has, I think it helps a lot to start like uh, moving the diary in the right direction about uh, wh wh why you should take a step back and um, 
like before you do your strategy, do your diagnosis, do your brand tracking in any way you want. We say use tech. Uh, we have tech in there um, that complements the brand tracking, yeah. and you can you can do uh, magical th- uh, things with it. Uh, others, you know, um, say different things, but fundamentally, at the very essence of it is, you know, set your objectives uh, and then measure them. Uh, that's what we're saying. Yeah, and I do think you're right. It is a very interesting um, thing where sometimes bringing somebody in to to talk about this, you know, kind of almost hasn't got skin in the game. You know, the way yeah. here's the evidence. I can tell you about the evidence. You can do what you want because sometimes if it comes from the marketing team, they're like, oh, here they go. You know, here they go again, trying to you know trying to convince us. And so that is a very you know often useful way of kind of just saying, look. Here's somebody who's done, and not necessarily you, but like here's somebody who's done research, who's looked at all the data, looked at the evidence. You know, mm-hmm. they've yeah. no skin in the game whether we spend or not, right? You know, so that's I I, I do think that I, I see that as a very, you know, useful tool, and and so it's great having you know reports like this that are that are there and available, and people can leverage or find other ways to to leverage them. You know, I think it's it's helpful even you know sharing this to you know to to. To CEOs or CFOs, you know, if people want to listen to that, it, it kind of, it's a different perspective. Um, and I, I think it's really, really helpful. My last question, yes. we're nearly at time, Mary, is how do you think about how marketing teams should be creating kind of a culture, like an evidence-based culture within organizations? Um, you see, I think there's a, there's a culture already of some kind of measurement, uh, but it's not necessarily evidence-based. And I think the what I would say uh, is that the, the, probably the greater challenge is not to create the evidence-based culture, but to actually break through the vicious cycle of using the wrong measurement, you know, the bias right. measurement. Uh, because if you do if you do that, you get you get stuck. It's very hard to get unstuck because it's far too sweet. So it's <laughs> um, the. Um, it's, Pretty much every marketing team is using something. You know, after all, they've got to demonstrate that they are they're doing their job. But there's but there's a lot of data out there, and and I often um, uh, remember uh, Drucker's quote about what gets measured gets managed. But uh, but you see, um, I think we are now in a place where everything gets measured, but yeah. but but nothing actually gets done. And you know what I really like? I really like. Um, uh, professor Cowers, he's a professor at the Northeastern uh, University, and we've partnered um, on some things. And he is advising us all to make our decisions like a, a triathlon. So he says, swim uh, without drawing into uh, data, bike with precise analysis, and run with focus of mind um, and energy to battle your team's exhaustion. And I like this a lot. Um, I like that. He's, uh, yeah. Um, he's um, a great brain in the industry, but um, my 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 advice to uh, anyone who's trying to create an evidence-based culture uh, in their marketing team and then more widely in their business would be to make friends, to make friends with finance, speak the numbers language uh, yeah. with the CEOs and everyone else in the playground or boardroom and, and choose their metrics with care and cunning because you see... Um, 
you look at your objectives you set through uh, at the beginning and then and because these have carved your path you want to keep on proving to them that you've moved along nicely on that path but i'm afraid the data-driven culture starts at the top i would say you know that with the top managers who set an expectation that decisions must be anchored in data and and that shouldn't be a novelty that should be an odd um whether it is it's a different thing yeah. Brilliant. Mary, thank you so much. What a great way to end. Um, great advice. And again, obviously, the Modern Marketing Dilemmas report is available for anyone who wants to, to find it. I'll add links in um, the notes. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. You're to very welcome. To today. You're very welcome. Uh, thank you it. for asking me to come along. Yeah, great stuff. And we'll uh, we'll get you back next time. There's more brilliant reports coming out from, from Cantor. If you have any thoughts, you tell me, right? If you yeah. about what to write about, yeah. <laughs> you come to me, come to <laughs> you, you give me some suggestions. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah, yeah. Uh, parenting, as we were talking about before. Ah, yes, yes, we can talk about that. Um, I think we're going to find a good, a, a good number of readers, actually, on that yeah, as well. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Mary, thanks so much. Thank you, Connor. Cheers, bye. bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Mary. There is so much to take in and so much more to explore in the full report. So I would definitely recommend, if you've not already done so, go and download the Cantor report. Just Google Cantor Modern Marketing Dilemmas. I will add a link to the show notes and you'll be able to find it there as well. It was a real pleasure interviewing Mary today and I hope you enjoyed it. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening or watching That's What I Call Marketing. If you enjoyed it, please do share and add comments with your feedback. You can get in touch and find all previous episodes on That's What I Call Marketing.com or follow us on Instagram on That's What I Call Marketing where we put up some shorter clips on Twitter where we talk about other marketing stuff You'll find us, that's underscore marketing. And now you can watch our episodes back on YouTube. And yes, you guessed it, just find That's What I Call Marketing. So for me, Conor Byrne, until the next episode, take care.